Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to STEM Unplugged. I'm your host, Kelly Green, the Chief Operations Officer of SciTech Institute, a collaborative nonprofit organization making connections in Arizona and beyond. My co-host, Chief Science Officer of the Year, Chalet, is here tonight. Hi, everyone. So excited to be here. And in this episode of STEM Unplugged, we will be talking about exploring Arizona advanced manufacturing. Our guest for the episode will be David Garfano from uh, the Senior Vice President of the Arizona Commerce Authority, MEP, and Leah Palmer from Mesa Community College's Advanced Manufacturing Institute. She's the Executive Director. So if you would please, Dave, introduce yourself a little bit. Hi, I'm Dave Garfano. I'm with the Arizona Manufacturing Extension Partnership. We help manufacturers all around the state of Arizona to be the most successful businesses they can be uh, by providing a variety of different services from strategic planning, operational support, lean manufacturing, supply chain, access to advanced technologies, and access to workforce talent. Awesome. Leah, you want to give a little? Yes, thank you. Um, My name again is Leah Palmer, and I've been in the manufacturing arena for about eight years. And it started with a need where community college students were trying to onboard and rediscover some of their technical skills and talents. And manufacturers were trying to find talents. So we created the Arizona Advanced Manufacturing Institute to help that navigation be a lot more user-friendly because it seems that people can have dreams but don't know how to make them happen or how to find the resources to make the dream come true. So manufacturing, believe it or not, uh, is one of those who knew that if God didn't make it, somebody manufactured it, that all things have some kind of manufacturing touching it. Awesome. So I know, Dave, you talked with Katie, our outreach coordinator, a little bit about advanced versus other manufacturing. You want to give us a little description of what you guys discussed today? Yeah, I think the simplest way to define advanced manufacturing is just making cool stuff with cool technologies. We can make it really complicated and talk about the technology and the different processes, but simply that's what it boils down to. So the manufacturing industry is changing a lot every day. And uh, we were wondering, what is the industry looking for nowadays for both of you? (laughs) David? (laughs) We see some pretty significant challenges out there because technology is changing very, very quickly. So from a workforce perspective, you know, companies are having challenges finding the right skilled individuals to fill the jobs that they have in their manufacturing facilities. We also see the technology from a process perspective changing very quickly. And in many cases, that requires companies to make significant capital investments to implement that technology, which is really easy if you're a very large Fortune 500 manufacturer. But for a lot of the smaller companies we have across the state, that becomes challenging. So we'll help guide them through that process and decide where it makes sense to make the investments and how they can skill up their talent or find new talent. From the education and industry relationship Manufacturing became quite scary not too long ago because a lot of the jobs were being exported out of the country. So parents now of those who are looking to get an education, it has been very hard to get the attraction efforts rebooted, if you will, Mm -hmm. to make manufacturing sexy again and to make it look like the career that has potential and long-term viability. So for us Um, at the Arizona Manufacturing Institute, what we're trying to do is dive deeper into the K-12 programs to give them a sense of this is where advanced technology lives, the age of the digital footprint and the things that, that, you know, you have uh, to build the future of manufacturing. So what are some of those things that you're doing to try to build that pipeline? I mean, what would you suggest to any, you know, company out there that's trying to really engage with that pipeline, but also what are they looking for? Back to that, you know, what are you focused on? Seeing is believing. 
I think one of the first things that you have to do is have this kind of transparency open door where students and youth get to go in and see the cool technology that's actually happening, that it isn't just what's in their phone that's making their world tick, that there's actually robotics and automated, you know, technologies that that fascinate them. Uh, Industry partners need to open their doors, and colleges need to have equipment that looks like tomorrow's technology. So for us, giving them the opportunity to see what the possibilities are is the first step to seeing themselves in the manufacturing field. That's that's really great to hear, because as a high school student, a lot of the career fairs and things I've attended like that, uh, not a lot of manufacturing companies are there. So it's nice to hear that. Uh, that's trying to be incorporated into those types of things to uh, make the to, so that students know that it is an option. Mm-hmm. Leah mentioned the focus on parents, and I think that's coming full circle, right? There's been a whole generation that looked at manufacturing as the hard, physical, dirty jobs, mm-hmm. and that's not the case anymore. We're seeing it's much more technology oriented, requires more brain power than it does muscle power. But I think parents and students are beginning to recognize they can spend four years in college, walk away with two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars in debt, and get a job that pays, in many cases, less than a manufacturing job they could have gotten without going to college and just with some on the job or technical training. So I think the parents' thinking is going to continue to evolve, and it should. I think it's important to talk about that, that pathway of you don't have to head straight into a four-year degree program, right? Even at the community college level, there's opportunity to explore different ideas that you might not have known that you were passionate about. Maybe you had no idea that you wanted to know the little pieces inside your phone that actually make stuff work. I know, um, Chalet, you went to On Semiconductor and had the opportunity to see what they were building and manufacturing, not necessarily here in Arizona, but the company as a whole. Yeah, and I think that was a really cool experience because it did introduce me to that, you know, that possibility of going into the manufacturing field. And I had uh, been learning about some of that stuff in my classes, you know, but I didn't really see how it, I hadn't really seen like how it was uh, made in, made in the workforce and how the impact it was having, like the the jobs that were behind it, uh, you know, all of those real life applications of it. And so that was a really cool opportunity to see all of those things. So what are you most excited about? And this goes to everybody in the room of the stuff that's coming soon, right? The world is changing a lot quicker than it did 20 years ago. And, you know, being that you're both immersed in the manufacturing um, sector and then also Chalet, you're headed into, you know, your high school, then college years or advanced manufacturing role right out of school, depending on what you choose. But what are you most excited about? being involved in this um, opportunity to share what advanced manufacturing is? So for the feedback that we get from uh, the students that are in the college pipeline is this kind of age of agility mindset that the rapid changes that are happening, they're on the forefront of that. To be a technician is really, at this point, not repetitive behaviors. In fact, repetitive behaviors are becoming automated. Mm -hmm. What they're now being looked at is the troubleshooters, the creative um, how do you how do you see new materials um, and and what are the possibilities of of those kinds of materials to make things lighter and cost effective and it's idea building and for technicians they're the ones that can uh, be on the front line seeing what may be a better way to do it and how to help the engineer uh, figure out um, you know the next new thing. Dave, what do you think? One of the most exciting things for me is looking at the possibilities for career paths for people that aren't going to college. So people that we think might generally have lower paying jobs their entire lives can get into manufacturing without the huge investment or commitment of time in a university program, get into manufacturing and have a serious career path. And the question reminds me of a story we had from one of our clients last year who had a janitor hired someone as a janitor for $12 an hour. And after about six months of working really hard, he asked um, the plant manager, can you teach me how to load material into the equipment? They taught him that. He got a raise for doing that when he was trained. At night, without telling the company, he paid for himself to go to a community college program to learn how to be a CNC programmer. Mm -hmm. 
Nice. Two years after he was a janitor, he was now a CNC programmer. So he went from making $12 an hour to $70,000 a year wow. with just his minimal investment in a community college program. So there's a significant career path. And if you look at kids getting out of college today, many of them with huge debt loads aren't making that much money with a four-year degree. Absolutely. I think that's also really great because I know a lot of the students around me, they think that they're not going to go anywhere in life because their parents don't have enough money for college. And so it's nice that there are these options that can still make them enough money to support a family um, but aren't as expensive. So I noticed in your 25 years of product and technology development around the world, is there an importance, Dave, that connecting students, which we do in the CSO program, to other students around the world, what is the impact on not just Arizona, but other states, other parts of the world? I think it's great. The better connected you can be, the the better off, right? We kind of live in a bubble, right? Not just in Arizona, but in the United States, Mm -hmm. because we're such a large country. We don't realize how much goes on in the rest of the world. But then you go to the store, right? And almost everything you buy is made in China or somewhere else. And you begin to think, you should. Where's all this stuff coming from? Who's making this? How is it being made? How does that affect the future of our country if we're not making things anymore? Right. And we're seeing now more and more companies are asking us to help them bring production from outside the U.S. back to the U.S. and back into Arizona um, because labor is less and less of a content. Of less of the cost content of a product, capital is more. Capital is roughly the same cost anywhere in the world. I think it's fantastic, and there are more opportunities for students now than ever before to get experience outside the U.S. and to connect. Think of all the social media tools, right? You can connect with anybody in the world. You can use WhatsApp to talk to anybody anywhere on the planet. Yeah, We didn't have those things 30 years ago. It's pretty incredible. We use those as well. <laughs> so what about um, your take on it, Leah? What are your hopes of getting connected, not just in Arizona, but we want to absolutely focus on our Arizona communities, but then beyond, what are your hopes? Well, one of the things that being a certified technician, and what I mean by that is, is that you look at a lot of these uh, training programs that we deliver at the community college, and we make sure that they're in alignment with a nationally certifying body to validate the fact that they are competent in those skills. So even if you go uh, and work for a company and realize that you need now because of the future of work to get new skills to add to your portfolio, you can get a certified skill, validated skill, and then that's portable wherever you go. You can cross state lines. You can go to different places and that skill means something because it tells the employer, you know what you're doing. So at Mesa Community College and other other um, educational facilities, we're making sure that our curriculum and our competencies are in alignment with those national and some international skill sets. So Shalai, I wanted to ask a little bit about experiences as a high school student, right? What do you think would be um, something we could express to the listeners, any companies or organizations that are tuned in, what do student, What are students looking for? What do they want the companies to express to help you decide to work for their company? Yeah, I think that high school students, when they're looking for possible career opportunities, you know, trying to figure out what they want to do with their life, uh, anything that really shows like what they will be doing in that field you know instead of what I'm trying to say is instead of like a just like a poster about like what the company does having something hands-on that they can experience um, that would give them a taste of what it would be like to work for that company and to work in that field is something that really sparks that interest in a lot of students and is what you know makes them makes them realize that like that's that's what they might be interested in because uh, students you know they sit in class all day looking at presentations and and posters and things like that and at some point they just kind of become uh, insignificant and so I think having that actual experience uh, and actually them them being able to feel what it would uh, be like to work there and work in that area is something that's really important. 
So, Dave, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the Manufacturing Extension Partnership. Could you tell us a little bit more about what some of the goals are and what um, your team is working on? Sure. And a quick little bit of history. The program was created by Congress back in the late 80s when all of the manufacturers around the country were chasing low-cost labor all around the world and jobs were moving offshore at a crazy pace. And they thought if we create a program nationwide that could help manufacturers be more efficient, we'd be able to keep some of those jobs or more of those jobs in the U.S. So there was a really strong focus initially on lean manufacturing, continuous improvement type activities to help companies be more efficient. I'm not sure it really worked in those days. I was in manufacturing back then, and we were setting up factories all around the world, chasing low-cost labor and government requirements that if you want to sell them the product, you had to build that equipment in country. Mm. But fast forward 30 years, and you know we're just past our 30, this will be our 32nd year, the focus has expanded to anything, at least in Arizona, anything any manufacturer might need will help them get it done. So it's way more than just lean manufacturing or continuous improvement. And if you think about it, all people are different. Every business is different. They don't all have the same needs. So we'll help them develop whatever custom solution they need to achieve their business goals. Um, we have a couple of companies that we've worked with from the time the owners bought the company, helped them improve it, grow it, all the way through the time when they're ready to sell, and we've helped them sell the company. Are there any specifics that you see over and over in companies that are kind of the go-to um, or repeat, I would say, details that you're always helping with? You know, it's interesting to see. We see a lot of smaller companies. And if you think about the distribution of the size of manufacturing companies in Arizona, and it's pretty consistent across states, the majority of the companies, it's over 90%, have less than 100 employees. So they tend to be really small. Mm -hmm. And a significant number have, you know, 30 or fewer employees. Many of those companies were started by somebody that had some mechanical aptitude or they were a machinist. They didn't really have the business skills or the financial acumen to build and grow a company, but they were good at making the parts that somebody was asking them to make. So we do a lot of work where we'll go in and we'll help educate them, help them better understand their business, help them learn the financials, that understanding that they need to use their financials to run the business and to keep it healthy from a financial perspective and grow it. But we do all of that in the scope of what are their goals for their business and even what, what are they trying to achieve in life, right? If their goal is to work 80 hours a week and have a business that doesn't make much money, great. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's generally not the case, right? right? But generally they're working too hard, not making enough money, and we can help them turn that around. Do you think automation plays a big role in some of the concerns and with those companies, right, from 30 to 100 employees? What does automation, where does that play a role? Well, I think that automation can be an intimidating factor to people who feel comfortable with what they're doing. But I think that the opportunity, and especially for this younger generation, is that automation represents opportunity, um, we have purchased uh, several different brands of robotics. And they come in and they're looking at this and they're saying, that's so cool. And not only that, but we're sharing and doing mashups, kind of like the music, where we're inviting our IT individuals to come into the programming of the robots and we're using our technicians to do the repair and the maintenance of the robots. And together they're having this kind of collaboration and this dialogue. And it takes away that voodoo of that these are taking away a job. Right. They really aren't. The other thing about this younger generation that we're attracting, because bandwidth matters, we have to get a larger um, pipeline of talent for the, for the growing manufacturing that's now, you know, emerging. And that um, talent wants to build and be connected to something that matters to them. You know, we have students who are currently working on electrical wiring that is going into Apache helicopters, and they actually get to put their own stamp on a completed product that says, I did this. And then when they watch the Apache helicopter fly, they're like, that's mine. That's cool. I was part of that. Yeah. And so medical devices, the same thing. There's so many areas, aerospace, defense, that, that what they're making matters. The other thing is you've got other technologies that are going to continue to be disruptive and they're hungry because they love it. 
They love it. Some of the older generations of manufacturers may be more nervous than the ones that are up and coming, but I think that's part of the beauty of the up and coming manufacturing because um, we need those creative minds. Absolutely. What are your thoughts, Dave, on, on automation and from your perspective at the ACA? There is so much going on, and I think the scare factor is waning. The community colleges and the universities are doing a great job in partnering with groups like AZMEP and with companies. We recently had a client who had trouble finding people, and we advised him, well, why don't you automate some of these processes where people are just moving things around and train those people to do higher-value-added jobs within Mm -hmm. the business? They did that. They spent the money to buy a couple of robots. We helped them with the integration, but they partnered up with ASU and their capstone project for senior-level engineering students. The students did the programming. We had the robot shipped to ASU. They did the programming, got it all set up. The robots were shipped to the company in Chandler. Students went over, got the robots up and running, and the operation was successful. The company ended up hiring two of those engineering students to work full-time at the company after they graduated. So it's just a great success all around. That's awesome. And it cost them probably about 90% less than had they just went out and contracted engineers to come in and do the program and get get the process set up. And going back to the the question earlier also about uh, what do students want to see, I think that what you mentioned about Leah, what you mentioned about uh, just kind of connecting the dots between uh, manufacturing and the actual impact that it's having uh, that, you know, these parts are being produced for helicopters and things like that. That's also really appealing to students because they want to know that their future job will make an impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're seeing that more and more often. So to kind of lead into that, you mentioned the ASU capstone projects, Dave, but I want you to really kind of, maybe share a little bit about each of your opportunities to bring together educational resources and the industry partners, maybe something that you've been working on or you've been part of in the last, you know, you both have a lot of years in the industry, but something you're excited to share. I'll jump in. So um, one of the the biggest, I think, impacts that the Arizona Manufacturing Institute has is it brings... Um, a very connected overlap between industry and the pipeline of talent. And the reason I say that is I think an older model was uh, you go to school and when you finish, then you go out and you try and find a job and industry is waiting for you. I think now industry from an economic development standpoint needs to be very, very closely connected to the trained workforce and be involved in the trained workforce. So just recently we have created – a partnership with Boeing. Boeing needed 450 individuals who had particular skill sets. As a community college, just attracting 450 meant that we had to attract probably double that to get that kind of bandwidth. So to do that, we sat down. And the first thing that you do with industry and education, which I think is a practice that is going to become more of the norm, but it isn't currently always done, And that is that you sit down and you say, how can we make that happen? Right. Not, will you do this? And then when they're done, come and give them to me. Right. (laughs) Right. You sit and you say, how can we? And then this give and take of development begins to happen where you are absolutely defining the need, getting really to the core of, is it that you just need people who understand wiring or is it that you need people who understand um, that this is actually going to impact lives? And if you don't do it right, somebody, you know, is at risk. Um, All of those principles and practices. And so bottom line is we have, through this partnership, been able to make cost neutral to the student upon successful completion, scholarshiped their tuition. We're doing boot camps in nine days where they have learned the skill, mastered the skill, and they're getting out, and now they're interviewing for jobs. Wow. On top of that, we've had to get additional talent from Boeing to actually teach the classes, and we've certified them as adjunct faculty, and we're paying them to teach the classes. These kinds of how-can-we partnerships is how then you continuously improve those partnerships, and it floats all boats. 
because those that that are going through this training are now going to be eligible to work at the Intels. They're going to be eligible to work in automotive. They're going to be eligible to work in um, other aerospace and defense companies that need that talent. So we have got to do this together. It cannot be um, a chain link fence. It actually has to be this pond that we all get in. Leah, that's a tremendous success story with Boeing and very exciting to see those kinds of things happening. I wonder what kinds of things we could do along that model to pull in some of the smaller and medium-sized mm-hmm. manufacturers that don't have the clout of a Boeing. How do we get those smaller companies engaged? Well, and you know what's really starting to happen is um, the smaller companies are starting to come into the classrooms. And this just happened last week. And they said, we need machinists. And we realize now that 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 the job description that says we need five years experience or 10 years experience really is code for either we've got to steal somebody else's guy right. or we've got to change our job description. <laughs> yeah. I think that's important, it, right? It, it really Five is important. Five years is a long time nowadays. Well, and when you look at somebody who I call the investor, a student who pays tuition is an investor in their own future. Correct. And you have to honor that because they've already pre-decided something they think they want to be good at and they're there to master it on their own dime. So by taking that student who's proven to be a learner and bringing them in-house and having some kind of an experiential opportunity through on-the-job training or apprenticeship or an internship, we pay for students to go through an internship. We call it test drive the talent. Oh, I love it. Let somebody come in. Let them see how you're going to fit. What's your culture like? What, what's, your, what's your experience that you're going to gain from this that either makes you better for the next opportunity or this guy says, I'm not letting you go? You're you're my you're my next you know supervisor in the making, but this new company that just located here came in, talked to the students in the machining program, watched them work on the lab equipment, and then said, "I want to hire three of these guys." Perfect. And the guy said, "Well, I want to finish my education because I paid tuition for this and it's important to me." And the company said, "You know what? What we're going to do is we're going to look at second shift to make that happen, and when you can f- complete your degree." After six months working with us, we will reimburse your tuition. Wow. So they didn't come in the door with that plan, but they left the door with that plan. And I think that's the mashup that we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's the exciting part, Dave, because putting it back to you, right? What what can we do to make this happen? I think that's what our role is of getting us all together. Let's do it. That's an outstanding example. And you mentioned apprenticeships. And think back a generation or two generations, there were apprenticeships for almost everything, right? Right. And it seems to have gone by the wayside. We're starting to see it come back a little bit in manufacturing. What can we do to accelerate that and get more companies more interested in that and to get more students interested in becoming apprentices? I think apprenticeships um, has much like manufacturing, kind of an old imagery that, again, what we have to make it look like is this is how – you get that next job. This is how you master your skill sets. This is how you grow your skill sets. And um, a four-year degree gets you a good education, but it doesn't necessarily give you mastery. And I think what we've got to do is look at apprenticeships as an opportunity for mastery. I even think internships as well. I know the the piece about certifications is there are a lot of discussions about what are you able to do and prove it. So I think back to certifications and the opportunity for attainable things for individuals who are not necessarily looking for that four-year degree, but I know how to weld. Here's how I can prove it. And here's a certification that when I go to apply for a job, you can turn that in as you apply. I think those types of um, opportunities and making it attainable, offering them in more locations. So, you know, Mesa Community College, that's excellent. Are there other programs around the rest of the district that those are types of things are happening? I think there are pockets of innovation, of good practices. The problem with pockets of innovation, like anything, is that unless they get the ability to replicate and grow and supported, they die with the leadership or with whoever was running the program. Mm -hmm. I think important is that we create this kind of innovative and responsive space so that when something's working, that we have the ability to replicate and sustain. And I think that there are probably a lot of really good examples that we could sit and come up with. And employers would go, I didn't know that was happening in my own backyard. 
You know, right. we're located right on the 60 and Dobson Road, and we have manufacturers in Chandler that we could throw a rock across the freeway. And they're like, I didn't know you were there. Right. And I think that, that we have to do a better job of, of getting, getting that, that sense of place for them to come to, but also for the things that are working, share, grow, and, and help others get that as well. Collaborate, I think, is the next word there. So I know we, I forgot it in the intro, but you are the guru of all manufacturing. We joked earlier today. But um, so again, back to Dave, like, what do we do? What's the next step? How do we get the small businesses that you're working with in touch with, you know, the opportunities that Leah's talking about? How do, what do we do? It's happening, not as fast as we'd all like to see, but there really is a lot happening. It happens slowly. But we're making tremendous progress as a state, and it's really impressive to see. And sometimes we're all driving so hard to get there. Mm -hmm. We need to step back and realize we never really get there because the world is changing too fast, but we're constantly building momentum. So we put a lot of effort with our clients into bringing them training, introducing them to the different sources of training around the state, the different certification programs, and they're learning. We're at a little bit of a disadvantage in Arizona because we don't have in the manufacturing space a lot of really strong professional associations. There are a few, but so many of the manufacturers, especially the smaller ones, are so focused on just running their company and building product. We've had clients that say, well, hey, can you find me a source for this? Well, yeah. Did you talk to so-and-so on the other side of the industrial park? Who? Right. They're 500 feet away. They don't know each other are there. So there are some groups that are helping to build those relationships. We try to use the AZMEP to connect. Um, we do an awful lot of that. Many of our clients would prefer to do business with local suppliers than to buy parts from other states or outside the country. It's just easier, right? right. And it's faster. But they don't always know, you know, the counterparts exist. So we're trying to build that. The continued focus on education, the apprenticeships, we're beginning to see people with certifications move from company to company for career advancement opportunities. Well, then they remember, mm -hmm. hey, I used to work over here. They can do that. Make those connections, and it'll keep growing. Couple that with all of the manufacturing companies we see moving into the state. Yeah. Um, it's huge. And, you know, when did Arizona get an automotive industry? Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> now we're making tractor trailers. Now we're making electric cars, right? Not quite, but we're, we're on the path. Yeah, and we're we'll be there in a couple of years. Those are creating thousands of jobs, each of those companies. More qualified talent that's required. So we tend to think also about only the talent that already exists in the state. Mm -hmm. I think they're projecting 140,000 people will move to Arizona this year. Wow. They're not all retirees, right? Right. <laughs> A lot of young families that are coming here for opportunities and they're bringing those skill sets with them. Many of them will come and take advanced training or develop additional skills, require the certifications, they need to get those good jobs. So it's all very exciting. It is, absolutely. Shalai, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think the the skill of being able to build those relationships, I think that's something that uh, really needs to be built into a lot of the career readiness programs uh, that already exist, because I know that's something that we uh, train the chief science officers chief science officers to do um, is how to network and how to build those partnerships and build those relationships uh, because that communication and that collaboration really is key for the growth of society. And I think once people realize that, then we'll be able to go really far. I think the other part, you mentioned career readiness programs, right? Really talking about, if you think back, what was that one turning point of where you decided, oh, I can do this? Because not every every student in, let's say, sixth grade is prepared to say, I can do math, right? They're starting to get that decision of, well, I'm not really sure. So, you know, thinking back to your 12-year-old self, I know it was just a couple of years ago, shall I? But what advice <laughs> would you give to your 12-year-old self, and then to 12-year-olds now? Because it's different. You know, my 12-year-old self, you know, I would definitely say play in more dirt and, you know, hit the ball mm -hmm. harder in softball. But 
I didn't know that there were opportunities that there are today. And I didn't know the opportunities even then. So what what would you what kind of advice would you give yourself and then the twelve year olds now? I love this question because I actually think these things that if I could tell me what I didn't know, um, what would that be? And I really think that there's a couple of mantras that I have. One is I just want to tell people to be brave. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a beautiful and wonderful world out there of things that they could do that they don't even imagine that they could do. Absolutely. And we just need to make that apparent for them. I think the other thing too is tapping into your strengths. We don't really tap in. We don't really have good tools at the at the high school level or even at the beginning of the college level that said, here's career information, here's career exploration, here is opportunities that you may not know that are coming in the next 10 years, not even here yet. Right. So that they can make decisions that are forward thinking and not just what maybe their uncle did or that they hate math, so they'll just, you know, do something different. Because there's so much for them if we could just help them find their strengths. That's great. Dave? That's outstanding because when you look back, if I look back to my 12-year-old self that I can barely remember, (laughs) (laughs) the entire educational system is focused on failure and avoiding failure, right? and weaknesses and overcoming weaknesses instead of building upon an individual's strengths and realizing that failure is all part of the learning process. Exactly. Right? Absolutely. You know, your mind's, you know, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, right? But he failed a thousand plus times before he finally got it to work. Every child needs to recognize failure is not permanent, right? Okay. You failed at this. It didn't work out. Now we know one more thing that doesn't work. Move on and try the next thing, right? And that's what, right? Science technology development's all about. Keep experimenting, build a theory, test it out, pursue it. I don't see any of the schools, you know, maybe the CSO program is a little more focused on it, but, you know, it makes you wonder what's happening with all the other kids. And that's uh, something that I think is really important about these K through 12 outreach programs is uh, building these, these mentorships, because there are so many, just even like life skills in general, you know, how to pay taxes, what a mortgage is that you don't learn in school. Um, And so I think that it's really, really good to start as early as possible with building those, again, those partnerships with people that are older than you and that have experienced those things because having a mentor that has already gone through those, uh, those experiences that can coach you through them is something really, really powerful. So we talk about failure a lot with the CSO program. I talk about it a lot with my team members. Just the fact that, you know, you're not going to do it right the first time. And if you are, well, you're perfect and that's not human. So, Shalai, one of the points I think we would love to hear from your perspective is what is different now with you having experienced the CSO program and learning that failure is an option, right? But fail fast, fail forward, right? And, mm-hmm. and move on. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that uh, I was definitely, before I entered this program, uh, I was definitely a perfectionist. You know, whenever I didn't get anything right, I would beat myself up over it and just get really upset. And instead of focusing on how to improve, you know, and how to take that failure as a lesson, I would focus on the past and why I had failed, you know, and, and just all that stuff that doesn't really matter and that you can't change. And so I think that's a really important lesson for, for kids to learn is that, um, again, you need to, failure is, failure is inevitable and, um, it's okay to fail. And as long as you, as long as you fail forward and you learn from your failures and, uh, it's, what gets you places in life, you know? Maybe you should start running this school. <laughs> so, Are you sure she's 12? <laughs> no, now you're 14. I'll be 15 in a month. Yeah. Oh, so, <laughs> thank heavens. <laughs> so I wanted to give a little shout out and explain a little bit about your relationship with your mentor, Sarah. Like mm-hmm. what, what role did that play? You spoke to it a lot about having these industry mentorships and having somebody that, um, you know, Sarah's pretty young as 
an engineer herself. But what role did that play in your ability to get over being a perfectionist? You still Mm -hmm. have a little bit of it, but I'm really proud of the growth (laughs) that you've shown. What does that role play? Uh, I think that it's really played a major role because having Sarah as my mentor, uh, she's just been, she's given me so much advice, you know, on how to be successful and again, how to fail forward and has just, it's just been really nice to have someone in the industry who you can always go to, uh, go to for advice and who, you know, will always be there for you if you have any questions or anything. And just having that, that adult available, uh, whenever you have questions about even life in general, that you have a good relationship with, a healthy relationship with, it's just, I think it's, it's paramount. So I wanted to ask one more question about test driving the talent, right? Imagine back to your 12-year-old self again, and imagine if you'd have been able to try something looking back, right? Man, I wish for myself it would have been engineer. What would have been something that you wish you had tried now that you've lived a very full life? What What's mm-hmm. something different besides your dancing? We heard a little <laughs> bit about your dancing instructor. Oh, boy. I am still that young kid who is going to do all of those things. So I have, as I mentioned before, the mantra of being brave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what what I'd like to do is at a at a dinner party, if I said to, to the people at the table, um, I'll give you 10 guesses what I do for a living. Manufacturing never comes up and right. I'd be a rich woman, <laughs> right? But I can tell you that it has been one of the joys and the passions of my life. And because, not because I understand all of the mechanical or the electrical components, that's not really where I live. Where I live is as the beauty of something going from nothing to amazing. And somebody got to be a part of that. And I, I get individuals, students, um, and the diversity of these students are everything from out of high school to, you know, women coming back into the workforce to uh, second life for those who've already retired and now want to do what they really want to do, right? But the idea that they write emails and they say, thank you. I didn't know what I didn't know. And now it has changed my life and my family's life. And you think to yourself, just this point of intersection between learning and living made somebody's life better. It's incredible. Dave, what about you? How am I supposed to follow that? (laughs) I know, it's rough. (laughs) I think back to what Shalay said about perfectionists, you know, and I sometimes wonder, are we perfectionists because of the engineer in us or are we engineers because of the perfectionist in us? And when I look back, you know, I think if I could have wiped that out as a 12-year-old and learned to experiment more and fail more, and go and try more things um, would have been beneficial. Also, something I've noticed over the years, people tend not to think big enough. Mm-hmm. Think big, be bold, be brave. I love the be brave part. And go and try stuff because if it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. Right. Think back to, you know, founder of Federal Express, right? That was an MBA paper and he got an F on it. <laughs> and the professor said, that will never work. Nobody will ever want to ship a package overnight. How many people told Jeff Bezos, this is a really dumb idea. Who would want to buy books on the internet? Right. Now he's the richest guy in the world, right? So it's crazy. People need to think bigger. And I think children, teenagers, 12-year-olds spend too much time trying to fit in instead of trying to figure out who they are and making their own path. Yeah, I think that's a dangerous place, too, that I did teach sixth grade math and that deciding who you are and where you fit in versus being bold, being brave and being you um, is a message that we really could change the educational dynamic in schools because it's not necessarily the same opportunity in the classroom to be bold, be brave and be yourself. Uh, So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be happening there, too. Shall I? And this is actually a a perfect segue into my next question, uh, which is for both of you, uh, how did you find your passion for manufacturing? And do you have any advice for younger people listening on how they can find that passion? 
Yeah, I think my passion for manufacturing stems from the engineering background. But realizing very early on, I didn't want to just be the engineer stuck in a room designing stuff. And I started before we had CAD tools. <laughs> she doesn't know. Do you know what CAD is? Computer-aided drafting. <laughs> and design, yeah. So all the design work now is all done on computers, right? Back then it was done with paper. I never had a slide rule, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> just the sense of actually making something. And at the end of the day, you know, there's something physical that happens. And I think back, you know, to friends that are accountants or other professions where they're sitting at a desk all day long, staring at a computer screen and, you know, for the most part, being bored out of their minds, walk around a factory and look at all the things going on and all the different activities different people are undertaking. And at the end of the day, there's product moving. There's something useful. And it doesn't matter if it's a food product that somebody's going to eat or if it's a satellite that's going to you know, launch into space and enable communications all around the world, the opportunities are just endless. And it's just fun. And look at today. It's, I'm sure in school they probably have 3D printers, right? Uh, yeah, they do. Right? Mm-hmm. So think of that. That was unimaginable even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? Absolutely. If you would have said, oh, we're going to print this, you know, I'm going to click a button on a computer and it's going to print out this product, people would have thought you were nuts. But there were people that believed in it. Now they're doing it. Big stuff too. I mean, the, I've seen the three D concrete that's making the houses too, and mm-hmm. that's amazing, incredible to me. And the accountants are still counting beans like they did fifty years ago, right? <laughs> they sure are. Yeah, I think that that's one of the beauty of uh, early intervention with the post secondary schools and the K twelve. There has to be a a blurring of the lines for students to feel like they belong to something bigger than themselves. Everyone seems to appreciate the individualism and they go and they do whatever it is they want at that moment. But in manufacturing, typically you are part of a system. You're part of a system that you get to do these pieces that connect to those pieces that then create this element that then gets to be in space. And when you look at it, it took probably a lot of hands and a lot of technology and a lot of teamwork to actually make that complete. And I think that that recognizing that you were part of that kind of brings you back to your own sense of belonging in the world and your humanity because this this is again we. Right? <laughs> this is we. And even not to diminish the me part of it, but the that the individual gets a sense of pride and connection to that. And I, I, I see it every day, every day. Mastery of someone who has learned a skill they didn't even know they were capable of, and then recognizing that they're going to use that skill to build, make, and shape something that gets to move on. Leah, you told me a story a couple of years ago about how many students were coming through the program that were mid-20s, mid-30s, even a little older, looking to pursue an alternate career or a secondary career. Talk a little bit about the excitement for them, because I think that's a big attraction. Younger students can realize sooner, hey, there are other alternatives that they're not telling me about in school. And those older students are a prime example. Yeah, you know, um, it, it takes people different amounts of time to figure out kind of who they are. And that they did what their parents thought was a good plan. And not that parents are, are not great advisors, but sometimes they're looking out for you for financial reasons or they're looking out for you for safety reasons. But when you really tap into looking out for you so that you can maximize all of the things that you love, we see that 26 years old is the median age of the college student that comes through our programs. They've already gone out there. They've already tried the other way. And they've said to themselves, I'm going to go do what I want to do. And they come back. And that's the one that I think every employer should want to try and get. Because he knows what he wants to do. And uh, I have another question real quick about uh, that inspiration you were talking about. For everyone here, uh, what are some, some words to inspire that you have for students, because it 
it's really easy to uh, get burnt out in high school, you know, and not make the connection of how doing well on your math test is going to help you in the future. So what are some some just words of inspiration that you have for students to to help them realize that uh, they can get through it and that they they can be successful? One of the things that good community colleges in education try and do and should do is that they have faculty who are some of those mentors. And a lot of them have come from industry. And a lot of them have been through this kind of trying to figure out their profession and found their passion. And now they get to share that passion and all of those things. It's like learning to sew. My grandma would say, well, you're going to learn to sew, but I'm going to show you the shortcuts. (laughs) Because here's some ways and the things that I've learned that have made it smarter, easier, and better. And when you have faculty that come from industry, they're able to help students learn some of those things um, and, and that make them a better technician. And part of that is having someone who walked in those shoes who can tell you the beautiful parts of that next chapter that they're going into. I love that. And I think back, some of my very best professors were people that worked in industry, either in the business world or in the engineering world. And there was an old saying, right? Those that can't do teach, Mm -hmm. but you know, the opposite is even more important. Mm -hmm. Those that can do make better teachers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And they can relate the experience. Developing mentors. And I know you mentioned Sarah, that's fantastic. And I would encourage you to develop more mentors and get exposure to mentors in different disciplines, different industries, and just be a sponge and soak it all up. And I think that that would be my advice to every every young person that's trying to figure out what they want to do. Talk, you know, and parents don't always make the best advisors. Sometimes they're the worst for the right reasons, right? Like yeah. Leah said. What's really interesting is how many professionals in these companies, large and small, are willing to volunteer their time yes. mm-hmm. to be mentors, to talk to groups of students, to go out to schools and talk about what they do and why they do it. To me, that's the most exciting, right? Listening to a professor or a teacher in a classroom tends to be pretty boring, right? Mm-hmm. But the guy coming in from Intel or the woman coming in from Intel talking about the new microprocessor that they're working on and what that will enable in computing technology down the road. I was at the CEO forum during the uh, Waste Management Open, and we had Governor Ducey and a bunch of people and CEOs from other states. And this company from California, I forget what his role was in the company, showed me what was basically an optical computer chip, the first one in the world that could process at the photon level. Wow. Right, So anytime you see displays, it's always converting electrical signals to light. This was light. They spent well over $100 million developing it in 12 years. But talk about crazy. 25 years ago, everybody would have told you that was impossible. Right. Now there are companies doing it. It's pretty amazing. So I wanted to kind of sum that up with a call to action, right? So if you're listening and you're a 26-year-old looking for a new pathway, definitely, you know, check out the advanced manufacturing opportunities. Connect with Leah over at the Maricopa, oh my goodness, Maricopa, Mesa Community College, and then also Senior Vice President Dave Garfano. So there's so much opportunity here. If you're looking, if you're um, one of those industry professionals that would like to mentor a student or another college um, individual that's looking to define their next pathway, we would love to connect with you. So um, we definitely wanted to thank you both for being on today. Thank you, Shalai, for being here as well. Uh, Thanks to Karen here at BRR Business Radio X for hosting our show. Definitely get connected with us. We want to let you know that our SciTechInstitute.org has a contact us page for lots of information on ways that you can get plugged in. Thanks again for tuning in. This is Kelly Green, your host, with my co-host, Chalet. And until next time, this was our episode of STEM Unplugged, exploring Arizona advanced manufacturing. <music>